The following message by Pastor Tim is brought to you by Together in Christ. If your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 24. This is where we'll be. 24, 25, and 26 this morning. Give you some time to turn there. Came across something this week. As my family and I were doing a devotion one night. I think we read a chapter in Proverbs maybe. Then we went to one of the catechisms. There's a lot of catechisms out there. Catechisms are a very helpful, useful tool for Christians where they ask a, ask a question and then there's an answer that reminds you of the, some truths in God's word. And our question that night was this. The question was, how is the word of God to be read and heard? This is question number 42 in the New City Catechism. How is the word of God to be read and heard? And this is the answer that we're supposed to memorize. Try to teach this with our kids. It says, with diligence with preparation and prayer, so that we may accept it with faith, store it in our hearts, and practice it in our lives. And there's some commentary on there you can read if you would like to. And it, uh, one of the people who wrote a, a little thing on that, his name is Thomas Cramner. He's an Anglican priest back in the 1700s. You can look him up if you'd like. But this is commentary on it. I, think it. I thought it was good. It was good for me as a reminder and hopefully good for you as well. He said, wherefore, I would advise you all that come to the reading or hearing of this book, which is the word of God, the most precious jewel and the most holy relic that remaineth upon earth, that ye bring with you the fear of God, and that you do it with all due reverence, and use your knowledge thereof, not to vain glory of frivolous disputation, but to the honor of God increase of virtue and edification both of yourselves and others. That was very helpful for me because one of the most difficult things for me as I approach this pulpit each week is to not share with you my opinion. That's very hard for me. Uh, I have opinions. Uh, The best thing for me usually is to not say anything at all. And I I can do that. I, I can usually keep that in. But if you get me to start talking, that's when my opinions come out. And I have a hard time holding it back especially if I have energy that day. Uh, I'm going to share them with you. No doubt, many of you at times would like to hear my opinions. I would think about things. Some of you have even asked me at times. But this isn't the time for opinions. This is a time for us together as a church to do what God has called us to do on Sunday morning in corporate worship, and it's to gather around the Word of God and to gather and look at it with diligence with preparation, and with prayer. Why? So that we may accept it with faith, to store it in our hearts, and then to practice it in our lives. This isn't like school where we come to just learn and gain knowledge. This is where we gather around the Word of God together during this time that we've allotted. We've, we've sang together, we've prayed together, we've done these things, we've given offerings and different things, but now we come to God's Word And we need to do it with faithfulness. We need to do it with great diligence. And we need to do it for the right reasons. That's what I liked and what I read. We don't do it for vain glory or for frivolous disputation. So we don't yield it around just to prove people wrong and different things. We don't use it just to fight amongst ourselves. No, we use God's word. Why? To honor him, to increase in virtue and edification, both of yourselves and others. So my prayer this morning is that we'll do just that. 
Now we'll do that as we look at 1 Samuel chapter 24 through 26. I hope that's a helpful reminder to you as it was to me this week as I was reading that with, uh, with my kids. So let's look at chapter 24 of 1 Samuel. All right, we'll read uh, the full chapter here and then we'll look at it together. It says, Now it happened when Saul had returned from following the Philistines that it was told him, saying, Take note, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. So he came to the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave, and Saul went in to attend to his needs. David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. Then the men of David said to him, This is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand that you may do to him as it seems good to you. And David arose and secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now it happened afterward that David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. So David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and went on his way. David also arose afterward, went out of the cave and called out to Saul, saying, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed down. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Indeed, David seeks your harm? Look, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord delivered you today into my hand in the cave. And someone urged me to kill you. But my eyes spared you, and I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father sees. Yes, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for in that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you. Know and see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand, and I have not sinned against you. Yet you hunt my life to take it. Let the Lord judge between you and me, and let the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients say, wickedness proceeds from the wicked, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom do you pursue? A dead dog? A flea? Therefore let the Lord be judge and judge between you and me and see and plead my case and deliver me out of your hand. So it was when David had finished speaking these words to Saul that Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. Then he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have rewarded me with good, whereas I have rewarded you with evil. And you have shown this day how you have dealt well with me. For when the Lord delivered me into your hand, you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him get away safely? Therefore, may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now I know indeed that you shall surely be king. And that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Therefore, swear now to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me. And that you will not destroy my name from my father's house. So David swore to Saul. And Saul went home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. Here we have the very first time that David spares the the life of Saul. In verses 1-7 through we see some really great restraint from David here. Do we not? David is in Gedi, in Gedi. he's in a cave, 
And once again, we find Saul, King Saul, looking for David to kill him because of jealousy or whatever it may be. And the Bible tells us that Saul enters into a cave to to use the bathroom. Kind of an embarrassing situation, I guess, for Saul. And it just so happens. I feel like I've been saying that a lot as we've been going through 1 Samuel. It just so happens that the cave that Saul enters into is the exact same cave that David and his men are in way back in the back. And so David's men he see Saul enter the cave and they go to David. And what do they tell him? They say, hey, listen, the Lord has blessed you today. The Lord has given your enemy into your hands today. Look, he, here he is. And so David goes and looks and he sees and sure enough, there's, there's Saul. And so you can kind of picture David at this time creeping up. He, he's hiding amongst the rocks, creeping his way along and he, he gets to Saul and he doesn't kill him though. What scripture tells us is he, he takes a part of Saul's robe and he cuts off just a part of his robe. And then he goes back. And it's, and it's interesting that after David does this, he, he goes back to his men and he refuses that they go after Saul. And he tells them, we cannot do this. And it actually says that David felt guilt because he even cut the corner of Saul's robe off. Now, for me, this is a difficult thing to understand. Maybe for you as well. If anybody deserved to die in David's life, it was Saul because he's been after him for a long time, thrown a spear at him numerous times, made his life miserable when all David has ever done for Saul has helped him out. Killed Goliath, led his men in battle, won victories over the Philistines, took his wife or took his daughter and married his daughter, treated her well. I mean, we only see good things happening from David to Saul. Yet Saul constantly is trying to kill David. And now David has this opportunity and he refuses to do it and he is actually feeling guilty because he cut his garment off, just, just part of the garment, the corner. And when you look at how David responds to his men, he talks about how he forbids them, but in verse 7 it says, so David restrained his servants with these words. It's much, it's much stronger than restrained. It's, it's David yelled at his servants. David told his servants, basically, how dare you ever say something like this? Don't ever say anything again or it's you I'll kill. I mean, that's the extent to what he's telling his servants at this moment. He's upset at them. And why? It's because he says, listen, Saul is the Lord's anointed. We cannot touch the Lord's anointed. He is our king. That is who God put as our king, and he is our king. As long as he lives, he is our king. <clears throat> So as you get to verse 8 through 15, we see that Saul is done. He, he leaves the cave, <clears throat> and David follows him out. And David speaks up. And when Saul turns around to see, he sees David there, but he doesn't see David's face. No, he sees David bowed to the ground with his face to the ground before the king. And David speaks to the king, and he asks Saul, he says, Saul, why are you listening to these men around you who tell you that I want to hurt you, that I want to do harm to you. And he has proof at this point. He says, look, I had opportunities to kill you just now. The Lord delivered you into my hand and I, I could have killed you if I wanted to, but I didn't. And look, here's proof. I have a corner of your robe. And now you have to picture at that moment. Saul's looking at that and he's like, wait, what? Oh, shoot. Yeah, that's mine. But there has to be a, a moment of humility then in the midst of that. To realize that the one that I've been trying to kill all this time just could have killed me and he didn't. 
And now he's, he's not just honoring me and respect. Look at him. He's bowed to the ground before me. He's telling me that I could have complete trust in him. And look, he has proof in his hands. And it's interesting because what David tells to Saul in verse 12, look, he says, let the Lord judge between you and me and let the Lord avenge me on you. But my hand will never touch you, David says to Saul. Now, I don't know if these were comforting words to Saul because basically what David is saying is, listen, I'm going to let the Lord kill you. I'm not going to kill you. I'm going to let him decide between you and me. I'm not going to be the one to do it. I'll wait on the Lord patiently for this. So I don't know how Saul feels in that moment hearing this. But that's David's heart. And we see in verse 14 his humility because he he goes to King Saul and he's saying, who is it that you're after? You're taking 3,000 of the men of Israel to come and fight. And to fight who? A dead dog? A flea out in the wilderness? You're spending all this time for me? Who am I? Right? Why, are you, why are you coming after me and fighting after me? We see this great humility within David. Well, then in verses 16 through 22, the king speaks up. And so Saul responds to David And it's interesting because what we find Saul doing is as Saul starts to speak, Scripture tells us that Saul starts to weep. And I wrote this question down on my paper. Why is he weeping? Why is the king of Israel in this moment weeping? Because if he is out there to kill David, guess what? He has David trapped now. David didn't take his chance. So it would be very easy for Saul at this moment to laugh and say, you're a fool. You're a fool, David. You should have killed me while you had me because now you're stuck in this cave and you're mine. He whistles or does whatever he does and here comes 3,000 men down the road and David would be over. But no, instead we find him weeping. And so I, I ask that question, why is he weeping? But I think the answer is for us in verses 17 through 19 where Saul would look at David While he weeps, and what does he say to David? He says, David, you are more righteous than I am. See, while Saul had been given over to this distressing spirit of the Lord, he'd been given over to his sin. He's fighting against Israel. Last week we talked about how he is in this this case here. He's an antichrist. He is fighting against the things of the Lord. Yet still, his heart is pricked in this moment because he realizes his unrighteousness. And he realizes David's righteousness. And so Saul, all that he can do is admit the truth to David. You've shown me goodness while all I've done is show you harm. You've cared for me when I do not care for you. He says if somebody were to find his enemy, would he not kill him? Would he let him go safe? But yet, David, this is what you've done. And it's interesting because then in verse 20, Saul makes a pretty interesting statement. He says, and now I know indeed that you shall surely be king. The kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. See, even the king who's on the throne at this moment realizes he is not the chosen king, but David is. And that it is David's throne. And that it is going to be David's throne. And so we hear this from his own mouth. And so he asks David Look, take care of my descendants. And it's kind of interesting because David's already made this promise to Jonathan. He's already said that he would take care of them. He wasn't going to do the things that a king normally does. And here he also promises then Saul. 
Yeah, I will, I, won't, I, will, I will protect your descendants. We see this promise. And then in verse 22, we see the two of them depart. Well, then we get to chapter 25. In chapter 25, verse 1, it's just a very interesting little sidebar. Because I have to be reminded what book of the Bible we're reading. We are reading 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. And look at verse 1. Then Samuel died, and the Israelites gathered together and lamented for him and buried him at his home in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. That's all we get for Samuel, whose mother prayed for him, prayed to have a child, promised to give her child to the Lord, his mom Hannah. God blessed that, gave, gave uh, Samuel to Hannah there. He was born. She gave him to Eli the priest. He's been raised and all these things. Oh, this, this whole story, so much has to do with Samuel. He, he anoints Saul king, coronates Saul, all these things. He then tells Saul, yeah, you're not God's king. There's a new one. He anoints David. All these things with Samuel. And at the end of his life, you'd think we'd get a little bit more than, yeah, he died. Everybody went out. Everybody went home. I don't know, I guess, the full purpose of why we don't have more there. We do see that it was a big day in the life of Israel because it tells us all of Israel laments his death. They all honor him. They all knew that he was God's prophet. But he gets so little ink here in his life. And it, it reminds me of a quote that sometimes is argued. I'm not into arguing about it. But it's from Nicholas Zinzendorf. He said this a long time ago. It says, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. I don't know if you ever heard that phrase. But preach the gospel, die, and then be forgotten. And I think what this phrase is really getting at is one of the things that we are to do is we are to leave our legacies to God not to ourselves. We do the things that God calls us to do. We're faithful to those things. If people know about it, good. If people don't, good. It's okay. I am who God wants me to be. I want to be faithful to him. And it seems like we have this in Samuel's life. It's kind of interesting. If you study church history and these notable figures, a lot of them, you don't even know where they're buried. You can't even go to their tombs or anything like this, or you would even hear from their own mouse and their own writings. They don't want that stuff. They don't want anybody to know these things. Now, God used them so greatly that we still know many of their names today. We still read their books and we honor them. But that's because God did that in their life, not because necessarily they did that in their life. And we see this with Samuel, it seems. Just humble, humbly, Samuel died, everybody lamented, and then David left and went on running for his life, it seems, from King Saul. And we see this kind of with David's life as well. David seems to be going down this path, just honoring God with his life, doing what the Lord would have him do, doing that faithfully, and letting the Lord determine his status, letting the Lord determine when everything was going to come about. We kind of see that with David, but we get a little bump in the road here in chapter 25 with the story of David and Nabal, David and Nabal. And so let's, let's read this together. I might jump around, I don't know. It says, now there was a man in Maon, whose business was in Carmel. And the man was very rich. And he had, he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. The name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. And she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his doings. He was of the house of Caleb. 
When David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, David sent 10 young men and, and David said to the young man, go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say to him who lives in prosperity, peace be to you, peace to your house and peace to all that you have. Now I have heard that you have shearers, your shepherds were with us and we did not hurt them, nor was there anything missing from them all the while while they were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever comes to your hand to your servants and to your son David. So when David's young men came, They spoke to Nabal according to all these words in the name of David and waited. So we see something interesting happening here, right? David sends these young men to go speak to the guy who's kind of running the property, running the area where David and his men have been for a while. And he's just asking for Nabal, honestly. He's he's a wealthy guy and he's saying, would you be generous to us? We've been here on your land. We've done you no harm. In fact, we've actually protected Uh, your sheep. We've protected your shepherds. We've done these things uh, to the best of our ability. Would you honor that? Would you give us some food? Would you let us eat? Now, before I go on, know this. Nabal has no reason to say yes or no to this. He is not held by any law to do it. He didn't ask David to protect him. He didn't ask any of this. All right. So David is just asking for some generosity. That's what's happening here. Well, let's see, verse 10. Then Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away, each one from his own master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men when I do not know where they are from? So David's young men turned on their heels and went back and they came and told him all these words. So we have... Nabal here, responding pretty harshly, but again, he didn't have to do this, but you would think he would. It'd be an honorable thing. And Nabal doesn't just say no. He actually then goes to speak very poorly of David. (laughs) Who is this guy? He knew exactly who David was. David's fame had reached all around. Everybody knew who David was at this point. He knew who David was, but he's trying to speak down to him, right? Who is this guy? He doesn't care if David helped him or any way, shape, or form. And what what he's doing here is Nabal is living up to his name because his name means fool. But it doesn't mean just like a normal fool. It means like a drop-dead fool, an ignorant person, completely foolish in all things. That's what his name means. And he's living up to it 100%. And so where we stopped, the men go to report this to David. So let's see how David responds. Says then David said to his men, Every man gird on his sword. So every man girded on his sword, and David also girded on his sword, and about 400 men went with David, and 200 stayed with the supplies. Let me, let me, let me sum that up. This is what David said Let's go kill him. That's what David just said. Let's go kill this guy. He's not going to give us any food. He's not going to show us any hospitality for the things that we have done. He deserves to die. Now, I want you to compare verse 13 of chapter 24 with verse 13 of chapter 25. Because in chapter 25, he says, let's go kill this guy. In chapter 24 of verse 13, he says, as the proverb of the ancients say, wickedness proceeds from the wicked, but my hand shall not be against you. What a change. What a change in very little time. 
Just moments ago with King Saul, he's saying, let the Lord avenge this. I'm not going to kill the king's anointed or the Lord's anointed. The Lord will kill you. The Lord will put me as king when I need to be king. I am not going to kill you. But now with Nabal, David says, you're mine. I'm going to kill you today. And as you'll see later, I think it's verse 22 or so, not just you, I'm going to kill every man in your household. No one will be living after this. Kind of an interesting little switchover for David. But I do want us to notice what David is doing here is sinful. This is not righteous anger. This isn't anger that should be coming from him. This is sinful in what he is doing here because what David is doing is he is choosing to fight for his honor above the Lord's honor. That's what David's ha- what's happening here. This guy did not disrespect God in any way, shape, or form. This guy disrespected David in his name. And David is saying, I'm going to honor my name here. You're going to die for doing that, for disrespecting me. And so what we see happening here is David sinning. Well, thankfully, salvation comes. Look at verse 14. Now one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he reviled them. But the men were very good to us, and we were not hurt, nor did we miss anything as long as we accompanied them. When we were in the fields, they were a wall to us both by night and day, all the time we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know and consider what you will do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his household. For he is such a scoundrel that one cannot speak to him. You ever know someone like that? I do. Verse 18. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed, five seas of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and loaded them on donkeys and said to her servants, go on before me, see I'm coming after you. But she did not tell her husband, Nabal. So it was, she rode on the donkey that she went down under the cover of the hill and there were David and his men coming down toward her and she met them. Now David had said, surely in vain I have protected all that this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belongs to him and he has repaid me evil for good. May God do so and more also to the enemies of David if I leave one male of all who belong to him by morning light. Now when Abigail saw David, she dismounted quickly from the donkey, fell on her face before David and bowed down to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me, my Lord, on me let this iniquity be. And please let your maidservant speak in your eyes, in your ears, and hear the words of your maidservant. Please let not my Lord regard this scoundrel Nabal, For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and your soul lives, since the Lord has held you back from coming to bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek harm from my Lord be as Nabal. And now this present which your maidservant has brought to my Lord, let it be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your maidservant. For the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house because my Lord fights the battles of the Lord. And evil is not found in you throughout your days. Yet a man has risen to pursue you and seek your life. But the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the pocket of a sling. And it shall come to pass when the Lord has done for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you 
and has appointed you ruler over Israel, that this will be no grief to you, nor offense of heart to my Lord, either that you have shed blood without cause or that my Lord has avenged himself. But, the, but when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. Then David said to Abigail, blessed is the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. And blessed is your advice and blessed are you because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed and from avenging myself with my own hand. For indeed, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has kept me, has kept me back from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, surely by morning light, no males would have been left to Nabal. So David received from her hand what she had brought him and said to her, go up in peace to your house. See, I have heeded your voice and respected your person. So enters the scene a woman. You got two men coming together, butting heads. Normal. And what we have coming on the scene is this woman, Abigail, who plays peacemaker. One of the servants of Nabal comes to her and says, listen, your husband's been nasty again. David has shown kindness to him, but Nabal will not show him kindness. And so Abigail says, well, then I'm going to attempt to bring peace here. And it makes me wonder if this was the first time she ever did this. I don't know. I don't think so. She knew the reputation of her husband. I'm sure she endured the brunt of it at times in her own life. And here she is with a difficult husband who's pretty mean to people. And she's the one having to step up to try to bridge the gap of peace. Because she knows if she doesn't, something bad probably will happen. And we have to notice how Abigail does this. Again, she's the wife of a nasty man. A very nasty man. Nabal is not leading her towards the Lord, really not leading her towards anything good at all. Yet look at what she does for her husband. She protects him, she cares for him, and she treats her husband with great respect in this moment. A man that many of us would say, flee from him, get away from him. But yet she protects him. Why? Because it's her husband. And so we see here what Abigail does is she gathers food, she gathers wine, she gathers all these other things, and she brings it out to David. And she hurries out to him. She, she hurries out to David and she intercepts him on the way. Scripture tells us David was on his way to kill them. And so then Abigail and David have a conversation. And it's interesting how it sort of parallels David and Saul's just a little bit ago. Because Abigail gets off of her donkey and she falls before David and bows to the Lord. And what does she do? She says, David... Put all this blame on me. Now, I have to think about how David feels at this moment because that's got to be quite the scenario. David is ticked beyond all belief. All he wants to do is go and kill some people. He's got his sword in his hand. He's got his little army behind him and he is ready to wipe out this guy. And so that is what is on his mind is battle, is to, is to beat these people. And all of a sudden, this beautiful woman comes, bows down, and says, David, take your anger out on me. I'm the one to blame here. Now, David has to know she's not the one to blame. But she's willing at this moment to shoulder all of the guilt of her husband to save her husband and to save her husband's family. What great humility Abigail has in this moment. And so... How does David respond to this? What do you do? You're in the, minute, in the moment of a bloodlust. 
trying to fulfill this bloodlust. And this woman just shows great humility before you, brings all of these things out to your men to eat and to drink, all of this stuff. And there she is on her face, just begging that you would kill her instead of everybody else. What do you do in that moment? Well, thankfully, David steps up to her and says, you know, the Lord, the Lord sent you here today for salvation. You see, David was willing to recognize his own sin. And what the Lord had done for him in that moment is the Lord protected David from himself by using Abigail. She stepped in and it allowed David to see his sin. And David then didn't go on with the sin. He doesn't go on and kill the family. And so God provides for his chosen king salvation in this moment from none other than himself. While all this time he's protecting him from Saul, he now had to protect David from David. Now, I don't think we're David in this story really anywhere, but I do think we can all understand this situation. If you've been a Christian very long in your life at all, trying to serve the Lord faithfully, I think we could all raise our hands and say, we are thankful for the times when the Lord saves us from us, of how often we sin, but God provides for us an out that wakes us up in the moment. Say, what are, what are you doing? It wasn't of our own being that we stopped sinning, but maybe it was somebody else. Maybe it was a phone call all of a sudden came. Maybe, who knows what it was? Somebody walked into the room and it saved you from sinning. That's the situation that David finds himself in with Abigail. And so he accepts this salvation. He thanks her and then he sends her off. And so what Abigail does is Abigail goes home and she wants to go home and she, she's going to tell her husband what's happening. But when she gets there, she finds him drunk and partying. And so she realizes, I can't tell him this right now. I'm not going to speak to him. And so she waits until the next morning. And so the next morning, it says, when he is sobered up, she approaches him. And she tells Nabal what had happened. And as she's telling him this, before he even gets a chance to respond, the Bible tells us that he turns to stone. Now, most people would say he had a stroke. He drank himself to a stroke is what had happened. And so for 10 days, he is paralyzed. For 10 days, he's completely motionless. And then on the 10th day, the Bible tells us the Lord strikes him and kills him. And so Nabal had a stroke that, that killed him. What do we see here? In that instance, in verses 36 through 38, again, we see God doing exactly what David said God would do to Saul. David didn't have to go kill Nabal. David didn't have to go and avenge his name. The Lord was going to do this, these things for him. And this had to be a reminder to David. Look, you don't have to fight these battles. I am fighting them for you. David, I don't even need you to go do this. If I want Nabal dead, he can be dead. And he's dead. <laughs> That's exactly what happened. And so then as you get to verses 39 through 44, just for time's sakes, we're not going to read it, but you're going to see David ends up marrying Abigail. He's already married another woman. This is actually his third wife at this point. This doesn't teach that polygamy is a good thing. The Bible speaks very clearly of that. And so yet we see another sin that David does. Yet we see that David here then protects Abigail. He loves her well. And God raises her up. It's interesting in her life. How God has raised her up to be the wife of a king instead of the wife of a fool. That's what we see here. She's been faithful to the Lord. The Lord has been faithful and good to her. Well, then lastly, chapter 26, and I'll get through this fast. 
The Ziphites, I'm not going to read it just because of time. But the Ziphites who once ratted David out are at it again. For some reason, Saul, you say what you want, he's come to his senses or he's gone back to the deep, but he's after David again for everything that's happened. And so the Ziphites rat David out and tell Saul, this is where he is at. And so Saul then leads his army to where David is. David has spies throughout the land. He hears that Saul is close by. And it seems as if David is on higher ground than Saul because it talks about David sneaking out and he looks down and indeed there is Saul in his camp and they are after David again. And so when you get to verses 5 through 12, David is wanting to enter the camp. And so he has two people there and he says, well, one of you go. And one of them steps up, Abishai. He steps up. This happens to be David's nephew. And he says, I'll go into the camp with you. And so what we see, though, is Abishai wants to kill Saul. And so if you look at verse 7, it says, So David and Abishai come to the people by night, and there Saul lay sleeping within the camp, and his spear stuck in the ground by his head. And Abner and the people lay all around him. Then look what this good servant of David says. And Abishai said to David, God has delivered your enemy into your hand this day. Now, therefore, please let me strike him at once with the spear right to the earth. I will not have to strike him a second time. Oh, what confidence he has. Just give me one chance and he'll be dead, David. Your enemy will be dead and you can be the king. This is the situation they find themselves in once again. And doesn't this make sense? Think about it. Don't you think David's servants are saying, Okay, David, the first time, we'll just count that up to a weird coincidence. But you telling me, David, a second time, God has just entered Saul right here, and here you stand before him. He's dead asleep. Nobody is awake. There's his spear. Remember, that's the spear he threw at you, David. Grab it and kill him. Second time, got to be God's will. Go for it, David. But yet we see David will not do it yet again. In verses 13, through 27, or, or there in verse, up through verse 12, I'm sorry. David tells them no. And so instead he says, take the spear and take the water, part, water pot and let's go. And in verse 12, it gives us a little hint how all this is happening. I'm sure you light sleepers are saying, how did they not wake up? It says, so David took the spear and the jug of water by Saul's head and they got away and no man saw or knew it or awoke. How? For they were all asleep because a deep sleep fell from the Lord, had fallen on them. Once again, God is protecting David. This is a supernatural thing. We see God protecting his anointed one. Allows David to walk right into the camp, to take the spear in the pot, and then to leave. So then in verses 13 through 27, we see David and Saul talk for one last time. The Bible tells us that David gets a decent distance away from the camp. And he yells out, not to Saul, he yells out to Abner, who is Saul's bodyguard. And he basically tells Abner, hey, you should be killed because you didn't do your job tonight. You're supposed to protect Saul, and you did not. I could have killed him. Abner has some choice words for David, basically. Who, who in the world are you? Get out of here. But Saul cuts him off because Saul recognizes David's voice. And so then Saul starts to speak to David. And he says, David, is that your voice? And look at verse 18. It says, And he said, Why does my Lord thus pursue his servant? For what have I done, or what evil is in my hand? Now therefore, please let my Lord the king hear the words of his servant. If the Lord has stirred you up against me, let him accept an offering. 
But if it is the children of men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day from sharing in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. So now do not let my blood fall to the earth before the face of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a flea as one hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I've sinned. Return, my son David, for I will harm you no more, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Indeed, I have played the fool and erred exceedingly. And David answered and said, Hey, here's the king's spear. Let one of the young men come over and get it. May the Lord repay every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord delivered you into my hand today, but I would not stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. And indeed, as your life was valued much this day in my eyes, so let my life be valued much in the eyes of the Lord. And let him deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, May you be blessed, my son David. You shall both do great things and also still prevail. So David went on his way and Saul returned to his place. As I said, this is the last encounter between Saul and David. They won't see each other again. What an interesting conversation. David once again asks why he's being pursued. And we see one of David's biggest struggles through this in verse 19. I, th- I don't think it gets pointed out a lot, but what David is struggling with is he's been kicked He's been kicked out of Israel and he's not allowed to worship anymore. And that's his struggle when he says, hey, you guys have sent me off to serve other gods. What he's saying here is he's saying, hey, you are not allowing me to worship with Israel in the sanctuaries. You are not allowing me to to do corporate worship. How I wish people struggled with that today as much as David did. David's heart cry wasn't, you're trying to kill me and I'm fearing my life. He's saying, you've kicked me out of being able to worship my God. You're forcing me out to try to worship other gods. Why, why are you doing this? And he says, are you listening to men? But once again, he says, are, is this of the Lord? And David says, if it's of the Lord, I will do a sacrifice for forgiveness. I will seek his face. If I've done something, let me know. But if it's of men, then let them be cursed. See, this is one of David's great struggles here. He wants to be able to worship with God's people. In verse 21, then Saul admits sin and failure again. And it's funny how David responds to Saul. He doesn't say, Saul, will you stop pursuing me? Once again, he says, let the Lord avenge me. Let the Lord avenge me here. And so then David gives Saul his spear back. And then they depart to not see again. As we look at these verses, we have to wonder, God, what are you wanting us to see here in these chapters And I think what what we're being pointed to here is we are seeing David as a king and we're seeing him being set up as a good king. It's been said multiple times that he is righteous. Even Saul himself would say, you're more righteous than me. And so we know this about David. He is a good person. He is anointed by the Lord. But we also see in these chapters that David is not perfect. We see the ups and downs of David in this chapters. Oh, he trusts the Lord to take vengeance on Saul, but he tries to do it himself against Nabal. And so David's own bloodlust almost causes him to be found guilty of this great sin if it wasn't for Abigail stepping in. You see, what we see here is we see a man with faults, we see a man with problems, but we see a man that is being chosen by God, right? We continue to see God protect his anointed, to protect his chosen one here, not just from the world around him, but even from himself at times. Thank God he continues to do that. 
Really what I think is being pointed here is pretty soon in our chapters, David is going to be king. But Israel is still going to be left waiting for the true king. Why? Because David's not perfect. Because David as a man just falls short of being the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And so we have to be pointed to, as we read this about David, being a new covenant people, knowing Jesus and knowing the truth of him. We look at David, but we understand that we are thankful for Jesus, who is the perfect king. That he has taken the throne, that he is perfectly righteous, that there is no fault in him. As we look at David's life and we look at Jesus' life, I've been trying to bring up comparisons over and over again. I want to do that again at the end this morning. In Jesus' life, we see him being mistreated. Just like here, we see David being mistreated. In Luke chapter 4, verse 28 and 30, it says, When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. That's Jesus was speaking, and now they're filled with wrath at him. And they rose up and they drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. So we see, similar to David, protection for Christ as the Lord would just pass through them. This, this crowd wants to throw him off the cliff, but no, now's not the time for him to die. This is not the time yet. And he passes through them, unharmed, untouched. We see him as well offered the kingdom and urged to take the throne before it was time. This is what David's servants were doing, were they not? They were saying, now's the time to take the throne. Kill Saul, kill him. Oh, here's a second time. Kill him, you can be king. And David is saying, it is not my job to put myself on the throne. God will do that. God will avenge me. Well, Satan tried to do this with Christ himself as well. When he would go out into the desert and Satan would tempt him, what would he say? He'd say, this could all be yours. And Jesus knows no doubt it could be. Jesus knows it will be. But now is not the time. Now is not the moment for that. But then later in John chapter 7, verses 2 through 9, it says, Now the Jews' feast of booth was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. So even with his disciples, even with the people around him, Jesus, would, they would be saying, now's the time to go and pronounce yourself as king of Israel. And Jesus over and over and over again to them would have to say, now is not the time. Very similar to David here. In all these things, we see Jesus never wavered. His mission at all times in his life for Christ was to do the will of the Father. And it seems like David tries to do that as well. Not perfectly, but pretty good. But again, that points us to the one who has done it perfectly. In John chapter 6, verse 36 through 40, Jesus would say, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, 
that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. See, this was Jesus' plan all along. This was his mission all along, was to fulfill the will of the Father and to not leave one little bit of it off. Notice he said, he sends them to me and I don't cast any of them out because that's his will. That's what he does and I do his will. You remember Jesus then would have a conversation with Pilate. I'm sure it wasn't a peaceful one because at this time Jesus was bound. Jesus was probably already bloodied. Jesus was already hurt. Pilate would take Jesus and he would question him by himself. And in John chapter 18, verse 36 through 38, you know, Pilate would be asking him about, is he, is he the king of the Jews and all these things? It says, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is the truth? Now, I'd like to read on and tell you he answered that, but he didn't get the opportunity to answer. Me and Pastor Spencer were talking about this a little this week, and I don't know if this is how it went, but it kind of seems like what it was is Jesus said what he said, and Pilate leaves saying, well, what really is the truth? And then he walks out of the room. But the good thing is we already have that answer because back in John chapter 14, Jesus already gave the answer to what is truth. When he said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, nobody comes to the Father but by me. You see, this is a statement David couldn't say. David was pointing us to the one who would be able to say that. And today, by God's great grace, we can look and know who is the truth. We can look at David and be thankful for how God used him in Israel and how it all plays out. But David just simply points us to Jesus. And Jesus did the will of the Father every step of the way. He wanted to obey the Father's commands always, and he did it. Because Scripture even tells us at just the right time, Christ came to die for the ungodly. At the perfect time, Pilate would say, are you a king? And Jesus would say, yeah, but... If, if I were to be a king here, my servants would fight. And you would remember, it was just before this, his servants did try to fight. He would be arrested, and what would happen? Peter would take the sword and start to fight. And what would Jesus say? Oh, 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 calm down, big guy. They're not after you. They're after me. Now is not the time for this. We're not fighting for the sword right now. Why? Now is not the time for me to reign here on this earth. I got other work to do. I have to go to the cross. I have to die. I have to do this. Why? Because it's the will of the Father, and I'm going to obey. And we get to bask in that grace because he was willing to do that. Our salvation is not found in David. Our salvation is not found in any kingdom that we can find on this earth. It's not there. We can't find it. There is no perfect nation. There's no perfect country. There's no perfect person that we can find to lead us to where we need to be. Because that person's already here, Christ. He's the only one who can take that spot. He's the only one who can sit at the right hand of the Father. 
and rule and reign. And I think we need to remember, he is, at this very moment, ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father, completely in control, completely with his plan. And that should give us great hope and great uh, thankfulness. As we look to David, we might say, man, I wish I could be righteous like David. You know, King Saul looks at David and says, you're more righteous than me, and that's how I know that you are going to be king. And we could look and say, you know, I wish I could be righteous like David. Can I tell you something? Even if you are righteous like David right now, you still, if you die, will go to hell. Because David wasn't righteous enough. Even though the Bible would tell us he's this great righteous person, he wasn't righteous enough to be with God in heaven. We needed someone to come to give us their righteousness whose was enough. And that's only Jesus. It's by his righteousness that we are saved. When we are saved by his grace, the Bible tells us that God imputes his righteousness into our life so that God doesn't see Tim's righteousness anymore. On my life, what he sees is his son's righteousness. Perfect, unstained, unblemished. Perfection. Not because of me, but because of Christ. My hope and my prayer is that's you as well. That it's not based on your righteousness, not based on your perfection, not based on your goodness of how you're determining if you're going to be a child of God or not. But that what determines if you're a child of God or not is that you can say, I trust in Christ's righteousness being given to me. That's my hope. That's my salvation. That's my freedom that I find in Christ. I hope that you're able to say that. And if you are, I hope that you're willing to praise God for it every day. I hope it fills you with gratitude and thankfulness. If not, I would beg of you to reconsider. I would beg of you to really look within and decide, do you really think you're righteous enough? Do you really think that's good enough, that you're perfect enough to be a child of God? If your answer is still yes, I'm going to pray that he changes your mind, opens your eyes to that truth. Let's bow and let's pray. God, I do thank you for the example that we have in David. God, most definitely we could look at David's life and see areas of our life that we could fix or try to do or emulate. God, I'm thankful that that's not the reason that you've told us about David. But God, how David points us to the one that would come from the stump of Jesse in Jesus. How pretty soon we're going to celebrate Advent, Christmas season here, and that little baby born in the manger. But how Jesus is the one that David is pointing us to. That all the Old Testament is leading to Christ. And God, we're thankful for the perfect life that Jesus lived. We're thankful for his willingness to obey you as his father all the way to the cross, to the point of death, to be hung on that cursed tree, to be a curse for us so that we didn't have to take that curse. And so God, in what I wasn't willing to do, what I'm not able to do, I'm not able to save myself, but yet God, because of Jesus, I can be saved through him. God, I know there's many here this morning who can share that same testimony. They know that they are saved through Christ, not of their own doing, 
God, we want to praise you. We want to honor you with our lives, with everything we say and everything we do. But God, I also know there's people here this morning who, no, their salvation isn't found in Christ right now. They're, They're trying to find salvation in other means, maybe even themselves. God, help them to see the truth. That even David, your anointed one, wasn't perfect. He couldn't do it. God, for that person here this morning who thinks they can do it, help them to see they cannot do it. That it's already been done for them through Jesus. And God, I pray that by faith they would trust in that and that you'd pour your grace out on their life. And God, that we can praise you for those things. God, as we sing this song, I pray that you'd hear our praise, that you'd hear our worship. We do want to worship you. We do want to honor your word like we talked about at the beginning. So help us now as we sing. Help us to respond to your word how we should, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to a message by Pastor Tim from Together in Christ. This content has been provided to you by Monroe Missionary Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at mmbconline.org.